0: tell you what's gonna happen it's
1: only fair that you should know it's gonna be real quick real painless vote for two steven dorf welcome back to quaid in full the podcast with all the Fox to give about actor dennis quaid i'm traumatized horse girl sarah debunting ama and i'm here with mr city slicker jeb Lund. hey jeb i have had it with these motherfucking snakes in this
0: motherfucking plot <sighs>
1: <laughs> You'd think I'd have seen that, that line coming, but I didn't. That's the one thing I haven't seen coming in anything to do with today's movie, Cold Creek Manor. Mm. Uh, I'll get into a plot summary in a moment, but first, have we any pod business? No. Excellent. Here comes yes. that plot summary. Buckle up. Directed and scored by Mike Figgis, yes, leaving Las Vegas and Time Codes Mike Figgis, 2003's putative thriller Cold Creek Manor joins a non-proud cinematic tradition of failing to apprehend the real and legitimate reasons people have for moving out of New York City. Then failing to dimensionalize small town locals as anything other than culturally stunted sluts and/or parolees, whose only interests are the cycle of abuse scatter chart and terrorizing recently arrived coastal elites. <laughs> Here, those elites take the form of Cooper Tilson, Dennis Quaid, reprising his documentarian role from the Billigy in Quaid in Full's second season, link in the show notes, his wife Leah, Sharon Stone, trying and failing to model off-brand horror paralysis, and their kids Kristen Stewart and Ryan Wilson. The exasperated collegiality of the siblings is one of the script's few successes. Little else about this story is credible. Not the Tilsons taking the decision to move out of Manhattan because Jesse almost got hit by a cab once but seems not to have a mark on him or really give a shit. Not the Tilsons moving that far out of Manhattan and buying a massive pile strongly reminiscent of the haunted manor in 1980's George C. Scott Horror Melodrama The Changeling, although in this case the most frightening element of the property is how much it would cost to heat, and the property taxes on what we are told is 1,500 acres. For those of you scoring at home, that is three times the size of Monaco. Not the chocolate-covered, <laughs> cherry-gobbling former patriarch of Cold Creek Manor, Christopher Plummer, cheerfully drafting off both Robert Duvall in Sling Blade and Brian Cox in The Ring, and that's not the only quote homage to that latter property either, whose withering attitude towards his no-account son Dale, Stephen Dorff, shirtless as often as the law will allow, is what we're to believe catalyzed Dale's monomaniacal focus on reclaiming the family property from the Tilsons when he's not busy slapping Juliet Lewis around, performatively smoking cigarettes like he's trying to pass a final at the Redneck Mime Academy, or <laughs> obediently hitting marks that might help the cameraman fool the viewer into thinking Dennis Quaid isn't a full foot taller than Dorf. Friends, Stephen Dorf really is short as fuck. I have a story about that, but I'll spare you. Dale is obviously bad news, but the Tilsons don't realize they're in a thriller and try it with him anyway. The townsfolk obviously have warnings to impart about both house and previous owners, but Cooper Tilson, a documentarian and historian, doesn't ask any questions. There is a pony in the first act that obviously goes off in the third... There is a well at the bottom of which a lead character obviously lands. There are stunt snakes, and convenient thunderstorms. There is much inadvertent hilarity. And at the end, parochial evil is defeated. And the Tilsons continue to live in this monumental fucking eyesore boondoggle they quote won, despite the fact that at least half a dozen violent, untimely deaths have occurred on the immediate grounds just that we know about. Have I missed anything? Please say no.
0: No, absolutely not. I do have uh, two proposed movie titles we could change this to, Mm -hmm. which I think summarize my attitude toward that entire plot. Uh, Either Cape Farm or (laughs) Straw Dog Shit.
1: (laughs) Oh, Cape Farm. I like it.
0: I don't know how you restrained yourself in that plot summary because there wasn't an element to this that you couldn't have done like a parenthetical dunk on it the only real reason it wound up that short I think is that you just wanted to be through it because you'd already been through it
1: yeah I mean that was for you the fact that it was only (laughs) a single screen worth and there were a lot of parentheticals in there and like going to that Robert Duvall place with the comparison is something that I resent this movie for making me do it's just bad. I, I will say that once I realized that there was not going to be anything really to hold on to except Kristen Stewart eye rolls, which I did enjoy, <laughs> that I just gave myself up to how bad it was. And it's like, great, dunks galore. Let's do this. Did you ever get to that place emotionally with it? Or are you still stewing with resentment? <laughs> It started pretty early for me because
0: I have, I know he's a good actor in, in some things, and this is very unfair, but as soon as I saw Stephen Dwarf, <laughs> a.k.a. John Spab, I went, so fucking what? <laughs> and then anytime something really dramatic happened that I was supposed to be invested in, but I could not be because it's Cape Farm, I went, so fucking what? And then like mimed smoking a cigarette with that kind of like pinch between the thumb and, and forefinger with the back of your hand on top, like you're uh-huh. hiding it from the rain yes. in the middle of the sun. Yep. Uh, and then the other thing I did, which was a, a really, I felt this was a psychic kind of tether to non-bad things for me was instead of picturing Stephen Dorff in this role, I pictured Tim Conway as Dorff on <laughs> golf. And that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he's not that much shorter than actual (laughs) Stephen Dorff. Here's my Stephen Dorff story. We were standing together at a crosswalk in New York City, and I looked over and he was doing that. He'd smoked like that in real life before he joined like Team Chantix or whatever the hell. Um, So I look over and I was like, oh, that's Stephen Dorff. He's actually not that short because where I was clocking him was like two inches shorter than me. So 5'8", Hollywood 5'10". Then I look down and realize that I'm standing like on at the curb in the street and he's up on the (laughs) curb. So he's got to be at least eight inches shorter than me. That's I mean, that's short. I'm not even that tall. So, yeah, he's
0: wee. Was he wearing those uh, those glass platform slippers with like cigarette butts
1: floating in them? Was that (laughs) only on uh, only on one foot (laughs) and on the other foot? He had the um, the spring. The, the acme spring yeah <laughs> <laughs> dorphy coyote all right i would read contemporary reviews but they're basically with us they had to be gentler because they were in newspapers and they weren't allowed to use swears but it's basically the same you could find them in the show notes i'd like to go straight into the clip carousel of five times i laughed at this movie <laughs> when i wasn't supposed to are you okay with that Yes, please. (laughs) All right. Here's um, Dennis Quaid as they're um, checking out the property when they're, you know, shopping for haunted, compromised piles in Cape Farm on Hudson. I think he thinks he's in The Sound of Music. Unclear. Once again. Thanks, EDR. You're the best. Don't go far.
0: Yeah, he's, yeah, you've got a 10-year-old and, like, a 12-year-old. And they're like, no, hold the
1: 10-year-old's hand. He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, uh. city kids. It's fine. <laughs> In our next clip, this was a legitimately funny scene until, and I didn't cut this part, the tween has to step on it, like, we got that, dead. thanks. But I left it because it was like, oh, this could have been something. And then it wasn't what are these those are farming things for what for farming i mean yep these people are married to each other wise-ass conversation sure um here's dennis quaid trying to manage the snake situation <sighs> Without the visuals, it's not quite the same. He's doing some real elastic, rubbery faces that I enjoyed. But um, him screaming at everyone to just calm down is not really going to work. Just a reminder, (laughs) score by Mike Figgis. (laughs) I mean uh, just fucking linus banging away on the piano and he's screeching i mean was this the first take hard to say i don't think so he sounded pretty hoarse
0: that soundtrack is is like one kind of disco guitar away from being like michael douglas and carl malden are chasing somebody through the streets of san francisco yeah and, and then his pitch and his freak out is like I'm not going to say it's a whole step. It's maybe a half step below Woody Allen trying to put a lobster in a pot.
1: Yeah. There was also a um, rancid top note of whatever the um, erotic thriller parody was starring Armand Asante. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was the basic instinct. Right. It was like 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 fatal death or something like that. Yeah. We'll find it. Uh, But we're not done. (laughs) Here's... Here's uh Steven Dorf trying to deliverance DQ out of town. One more.
0: No, no, no not for me. I gotta get going. That is true. Mr. Uh, city slicker. Mr. Fucking Coop.
1: Good one, Chet.
0: Get out of my face. Get out of my
1: home.
0: I know you put the snakes in my house. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Let's
1: try and prove that. So many of these are going to be saved to the permanent soundboard. Just this (laughs) soggy... I know you put those snakes in my house. Like. <laughs> <sighs> and every single honky tonk signifier, like there's, uh, you know, wailing harmonica. There's the foley of pool balls clacking against each other. Like, oh, my God, we have seen movies before. You can stop with this. And in the scene in the foreground, there's like cartons of milk. Right, he's getting shit housed at a bar with where he went to buy the milk. Yeah, so there's a fridge he could put the milk back in, Thank but he's just you. like, you know what? God, I was just like, it's supposed to be summer, right? Can you just put that back in the? Can we? Uh, are you gonna have Brandy Alexander's with Steindorf? What? Can you just put that away? <laughs> and of course, it's organic milk. But um, here is the um, <laughs> the piece de resistance <laughs> of these clips and. You know, Kristen Stewart is both made for this and nobody is made for this.
0: Oh, God. Go for you killed my pony. Oh,
1: <laughs> I mean, I, like we're not putting this in the visual aids because it's a, you know, horse dummy floating in a pool of its own blood in their pool. It has no idea how bad it is. I think this might be camp, this movie.
0: The presence in the previous clip of City Slicker, to me, is, like, the big tell. Like, there's a couple terms. I mean, there's more than a couple. But, like, within each genre, there's a couple terms where, like, as soon as you, you're you using that, <laughs> you know, you've got to stop and ask yourself, like, did anybody, as as you said, did anybody in this movie see a movie? Yeah. And, like... I don't care how drunk and psychotic this guy is. Like he's going to feel like a herb going like, "Well, well, well, looks like we got ourselves a city slicker."
1: <laughs> and like, "Come on, man, really?" And, and then Mr. fucking Coop. <laughs> What What is that? Like, I, I don't know. If you're in the sticks getting wrecked with someone who used to live in your house, and they're like, so, Mr. Fucking Jeb, are you like, oh, shit? <laughs> are you just like, what? what?" <laughs> yes, that's what the driver's license says. Am I supposed to be intimidated? Also, also, you're five foot two. <laughs> yeah, that to me is just your your signal
0: that everybody involved in this Didn't stop to go like, are are we sure about that? Can other people tell that we know what we're doing or don't know what we're doing? If you're going to throw that term out, that flag, if you're going to do like an adultery movie and you're going to call a woman repeatedly a Jezebel, Uh right? Or a fallen woman, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got to be doing textually something a lot more dynamic to be able to like refer back to the cliche deck. Just we're pulling one out, you know, and they don't do it. Yeah, so,
1: or they did know and they just gave up. Yeah, and they're like, you know, people are watching this for the air conditioning. <laughs> it's no cuffs. No, oh shit! Well, the cuffs counter is back at one. Know. it was getting up there. Hundred. It's been plus. like what, hundred and five days? Yeah, hundred a- plus days. Oof. Yeah. Well, I mean, someone had to did they no they didn't and i apologize (laughs) yeah the other thing well there's a million things about this movie and none of them are good but when i sort of went back over my notes the so-called crescendo of farm fear is like two steps right Mm -hmm. like there's him sort of eating like he's still in prison while they're all staring at him and then there's the snakes and then there's the horse and then on top of the house in a rainstorm for the climactic fight. Like it just seemed like the escalation was maybe not even Mm -hmm. or something was left out. Like, thank God, this did not need to be any longer than it was. It already felt quite long. There was just sort of a static quality to it for me. Maybe that's because I've, again, seen movies before. Maybe it's because I know that Stephen Dorff is the the size of Dorff. And I'm not really (laughs) that it's like, you know, TQ's going to pull it together and kick his ass eventually. Or Sharon Stone is. Yeah, no, I think I think
0: the confrontations in the town are meant to keep the the escalation going, Mm -hmm. because you have the confrontation in the bar and then later in the family restaurant version of Pinsky's, because it's, I guess, one and the same, Mm -hmm. uh, just at after hours, (laughs) alcohol comes out. But I think because it is drawing from the cliché soundboard or the cliché deck, it doesn't feel like an escalation to us, because one of the first things I put in my notes is as soon as we went back to the honky-tonk is... Once again, we're in a small town with these insular social structures, and everyone who is important to that town goes out to drink at the same bar every night. Like, these people don't even have kitchens. So the idea that, like, you're just going to go to this one spot and you're always going to escalate it a little bit more makes it less fearsome to me. Like, if you make it a surprise that, like, oh, this guy's there again, oh, this guy is coming up and beefing in public... That sudden sense of like, oh, my God, the danger isn't just at my house. It's, it's everywhere I can go here in this small society. It is it, it's suffused through everything that that doesn't resonate because I'm just going like, well, yeah, naturally that would happen. He can't go to that honky tonk. What are you, an asshole? That guy's going to be there every night because he doesn't have a kitchen. Yeah. Nobody in this town does.
1: Yeah. Not to mention that, as always happens in uh, big budget thrillers about small town life, anyone who lives in a trailer doesn't live in like a real... Double wide that someone would actually live in. They live mm-hmm. in a vintage airstream that costs more than the whole rest of the town. Right. There's just so many credibility problems, and the pacing is not good enough to make up for it. Um, but once I gave myself up to the perfused mediocrity of the project, it wasn't completely unenjoyable, but it was mostly unenjoyable. Three, giving it a three. That was gonna be my rating
0: as well. Rather than explain that in any more detail, may I nitpick a few other things since I never want to come back to this or think about it again? (laughs) Get it out. So they had to move to the country because the kid was bumped by a magenta minivan and that was enough, that level of danger. But of course, we end with the epilogue of they're still living in the murder house Mm -hmm. on the murder plantation. Like you would think that that would cause them to go split the difference between fully city and fully rural like the next scene would be like wow they're in tampa <laughs> i would have said levittown but yes we'll accept Amber. So something it looks like they just bulldozed it and put up the same ranch house and like we got four colors we got uh we got pastel blue yep we got a uh, cream sickle uh mint <laughs> yeah <laughs> mint mint uh, another one for me is he finds a retainer that it, it helps Add a little bit more circumstantial evidence, more on that in a second, to the fact that John (laughs) Spab killed his family. And uh, as soon as he picked it up, like, this was just an enjoyable thing for me. Uh, My brain just started going, dental plate. Evidence, traces, dental plate. (laughs) Evidence, traces, dental plate. (laughs) And that got me through like another 10 minutes. And
1: I've never seen a retainer that looked like it could have been stained glass from... This like indoor skylight that naturally he had to fall through to his death. Spoiler and a question mark, and that tooth. Yeah, <laughs> what kid has an eye tooth that big? What kid needs a partial plate?
0: The kid is clearly at the age where the teeth are still being replaced. Yeah, why? Except for the fact that you needed evidence and you needed something that was well, dentition. Well, that's evidence and they in murders. Just we know that. Get
1: props to make a smaller tooth. So it's like, well, um. There's this one from the Wolf set. Shall we use that? Sure.
0: But speaking of the evidence, we have the moment where he goes to speak to the the cop and says, you know, listen, I've got all this. And the cop naturally says, well, this is all circumstantial, Dennis. Uh, And as a cop, I could never arrest uh, and a DA could never prosecute a violent felon already on probation who has publicly harassed you in front of dozens of witnesses on multiple occasions. That's just not enough circumstance. It's like, motherfucker, we're in America.
1: Yeah. Also, that asshole is tuning up your sister. Right, in front of you. Yes. You drew a gun on him. <laughs> well, he, here's what may be the problem, and you'll, you'll see this in our visual aids. This um, law enforcement professional is wearing more makeup during the day to answer phones as the police chief than I've worn in aggregate in my entire life, including (laughs) to two proms and my own wedding. That is a lot of eye for Law Enforcement Day. Maybe she can't actually open her eyes, like literally, to the evidence that is pursuable in front of her. Tammy Faye blindness. Yeah. I mean, that is skiable powder. And sparkly. (laughs) I don't i don't get it
0: uh what one other nitpick i had just as a homeowner was the bit at the beginning where an antique dealer is low bidding them and Uh he's like i'll give you 18.5 for the contents of the house and like you can see the front room has twenty thousand dollars worth of furniture in it at least it's got two giant beautiful credenzas and two giant beautiful persian rugs of course, the bank would have already auctioned this off. Like I don't know how the fuck this happened. Well, but,
1: yes, but like that's one room, one. <laughs> yeah, like just the mid-century office shit that he's using that we see repeatedly. That Dennis Quaid doesn't know how to use. Like I think they have him using an actual movieola. That's like, come on. Yeah, no, eighteen five. I was offended <laughs> by that also.
0: I will say uh, for for Dennis, as somebody who has to edit audio for reasons, I did like it looked like he knew how to compress his uh, his waveforms. Like when he was listening back to Christopher <laughs> Plummer, the dad's the videotape that he took of him when he visited him in the rest home I was like that's nice and round. I could hear that in a car. Nice one, Dennis.
1: <laughs> these are the these are the straws that we grasp. Mm. Um, <sighs> as the resident horse girl, I have to say you know yet another thing the movie doesn't understand like horses are not large cats with shoes they're extremely (laughs) expensive you don't just get a pony Yeah, they're also heavy and if you were let's say
0: dwarf sized (laughs) i'm not sure how you're gonna slay a pony and then get it into the middle of that pool like because you can you can lead a horse to water right but if you slit its throat, you're gonna have to get it in there on your own, and
1: you're probably gonna need a little help. Okay, but maybe he led the horse. He led the horse to water. The horse felt like a swim. It's hot day. <laughs> right. Yeah. The horses always go into the swimming pools in the heat. And it's then, common knowledge. Yeah, They're like snakes, they love chlorine. Those horses. <laughs> and uh, then he slit the pony's throat in the water. That would seem like it's probably what happened, since there was all that blood sort of suspended in the why are we fucking discussing this? I don't know. <laughs> All right, they're so much bigger than nits, but any other nitpicks.
0: The epilogue, we get a scene of Juliet Lewis, uh, you know, Dorf's punching bag, putting a rose at his graveside oh, and come I kind of feel like after finding out that he's a triple murderer and a double attempted murderer, And he used your face like a piece of meat. Maybe you wouldn't do that. But so it was just a moment of like, I don't know what mixed feeling I was supposed to get from that, like how complicated the lives of the proles must be, because all I was doing was watching that and going,
1: what the fuck? Yeah, it's not that I didn't notice that. But I just was like, okay, the movie wants us to know that he's dead. I was sort of stuck on the feeling that this cemetery is on the property. Yes. I know it's a big property, but my entire zip code in Brooklyn is smaller than this property. So I guess they could just like have the the cemetery on it and not deal with it. Or like just let it grow over and not think about it. But Mm -hmm. the family plot... I don't think the property is zoned for that. Like where, what dimension is this? And it's commutable to Manhattan still is the implication, which like just to get off of that land is 40 minutes. Right. And in that that scene
0: where she's there at the graveside, I believe if if I'm remembering correctly, you can see like the outline of the house in the background. It's not very distant. So it's sort of like you've got the attempted murderer a stone's throw away from where you sleep and, and you clearly have kids who have a greater maturity than, than you presume by the way you treat them but like if you're going to assume that they're this infantilized that they need to hold hands when walking through greenery like maybe you're going to go I think they're going to be fucking haunted by the corpse of their parents would-be murderer. Like if the kid doesn't worry about ghosts now this is a great time for him to start.
1: Or... This is one of those, like, uh, city, you know, moves out of town things that they add to the kids' chore wheel. <laughs> that It's like, you know, twice a week, like, because you don't have band practice the next day, Tuesday nights, you have to stand there with a gun with silver bullets in it and a wooden stake and that ecto thing that they use on those history channel shows. Like, this is just part of it. And also clean your room. Shall we move on to Quaid? Please. He's okay. Given what it is, he's doing his best. Just like, stop making him a documentarian. Stop putting him in these glasses that don't fit. I know you and I don't agree on this, but there's another glasses scene that I'm like, stop buying him at the drugstore, please. Like, take a minute.
0: (laughs) One minute. It wasn't cute this time. No. Last one, he was kind of cute, but this time I was just, nah.
1: Yeah, no. I agree with
0: you that he's mostly holding it down. Like, I felt like we've maybe reached another plateau in his ability to convey subtlety and and you know a more dynamic range of uh less antic behavior but when the scenes go big i mean it, it really feels like the direction he got was like all the way up to 11 yeah. because he's got his eyes are rolling white in his head <laughs> his mouth is dropped into an o which you know you could overdub the jerry lee lewis singing from great balls of fire in some of those moments where he's terrified and he's just like, Whoa!
1: you know like yeah, absolutely you know
0: given that those are pivotal moments i want to take points off because it's like you you overdid it there but I mean everything else, the bulk of the movie, he's credible. And and I think he's doing as well with the material as any actor could have, given what it is.
1: Yeah, and he's not he's not making it worse. Like I, I think given that this script is trying to do way too much and also is trying to do things it really thinks have never been done before, and we're all like, uh-huh. I think he's pretty good. The clip that I have in support of the concept that he's, if not better than the material, then at least not aggravating the injury, is where the (laughs) script decides that it should imply that these city folk and their loose morals move to the country to reconnect with their marriage or whatever the fuck. This is a dumb scene that's totally unnecessary given that it's a thriller and your psycho villain is a psycho villain and you you don't need this part. But there's some elementary dilemmaing happening here, sort of a long clip, but uh, bear with us. What did you do?
0: What I do. I moved out here into the middle of nowhere with you. I turned into some some 19th century housewife, which was. Great for a while, it felt like this weight was lifted off my shoulders, and you were the one who was supposed to carry us through. But that is not what's happening. We're
1: we're drowning here, and it is time to get out. I said, "What did
0: you do?" I said yes, but then I called you on the phone. And that was the day that Chessie was very nearly killed by that car. Cooper, that was a wake-up call for me.
1: So, uh... That's why you agreed to come out here, right? I left that tag on because I thought that sort of like, ugh, I'm not gonna, you know, I, straight man, I'm not gonna cry right now Mm -hmm. and then he sort of flaps out of the room felt pretty real but also that was disconcerting because everything about this setup is garbage like basically this is a callback to a beginning scene where her oily boss was like so we should talk about your possible promotion over dinner if you know what i mean i mean intercourse um (laughs) And Sharon Stone (laughs) played that sort of vaguely enough. Like, here's this whole subplot that could have been something interesting where it's like, well, one or both of them cheated and now they have to team up and defeat the dwarf. And um, what is that going to imply? There's a lot of ways you could go with that instead of this by numbers thing that just leaves in... I was prepared to cheat on you for my career. And then I moved out here and counted on you to, quote, carry us through. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, I don't know
0: what she does, but she's a jet setter enough that in the beginning, we don't know whether she's in Chicago or Cincinnati. She's clearly the breadwinner. He's a documentarian. Mm -hmm. Like his big payday is like every four years he gets maybe two hundred thousand (laughs) dollars. (laughs) Yeah, that's he's not carrying it. And also, I mean, that initial scene with her boss, he is such an oleaginous little dickweed yeah. that there's no way I can buy her going, well, you know what? Maybe. Yeah. And then on top of that, we have, I thought, a credible depiction of idle dad, horny curiosity, where you see him kind of not quite eye fuck, but just give an extra glance to Juliette Lewis at the filling station. Mm-hmm. And that already established the tension of fidelity and infidelity. And then his Anxiety about Dorf touching her by the pool, putting his hand on her elbow, and her making eye contact with him already created the doubt that this scene then just unnecessarily doubles. It isn't contributing anything to the plot. It is instead making me go, wait, what the fuck? Did she like that? She didn't look like she liked that. And if you're going to basically torpedo some of your potential career advancement out of penance for considering cheating on your husband, you're probably not going to mention it. You got away with it. You're already punishing yourself. What does telling him accomplish? And then the last one is like, what on earth do you expect to come positively? Like, not just for you, but for him... Like, what do you build on with this conversation? Because what you've told him is, well, I was considering infidelity, but then our son almost died. So what what the fuck is he going to do now? Like, just walk around, like, misfiring guns near his (laughs) kids. So his wife's like, nope, still with you.
1: (laughs) Yep. Carefully positioning an anvil on top of every uh, pass through door. Like, it just doesn't. There's no need. (laughs) For this.
0: Like she gets up in the morning to go take a shower and like the kid is herald and modded in the bathtub. Like every day. It's like, just a reminder, honey. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and the kid gets up and like starts
1: wiping himself off. He's like, see you tomorrow at eight. Yep. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. And then he just leaves a stack of uh PBS bucks on the kid's dresser. Like, I don't <laughs> and she throws his shit under the bus in that same scene with the boss. That she's like, oh, you know, it's just small budget stuff. Also, don't start out hitting on your direct report by saying that you watched her spouse's work. This is a whole other movie that we're talking about here that should not be in this one. Because nothing should be in this one because it's bad. But if you want to explore his, like, thwarted provider drive anxiety about moving out of town and being, whatever, unable to defend... Her and his family from Rogue Dorf. Okay, then do that, but then don't also direct him as though he's in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah. Anyway, none of this is about really his performance, which I think is fine, mm-hmm. but not particularly Quaidy. Once again, he's given this kind of like NPR job that is like, you yeah, know, glasses don't work. The shrieking is funny, but off-brand. There's not a lot of grinning. He is in most of it, and he's good, and he essays drunkenness with his usual aplomb. But it's not all that Mm quaidy to me, so I'm I'm not totally sure how to rate it. I'm just going to come in at a 5.5, slightly above average. But again, he doesn't make a terrible thing any worse.
0: Yeah, I was I was debating between a five and a six because, as you said, it's it's a strange metric here because what we're familiar with, Quaid being isn't on display. But as we said, he's he's doing a good job with this abysmal material. So I I hate to penalize him. The one thing I would say, you know, the the lack of of Quaid charm or smirk, there isn't really a sense like why she would go. Okay, well. I need to move out to the country with you because I don't really get a sense that she has really any need for him. There isn't a moment where they're a little frisky with each other. And you could have done that really easily. It could have been a 10 second piece of the movie. Like you have the moving in montage, the kids are asleep and then they're there trying out the new fireplace and they start making out on the rug and, uh, you know, they're like a hand slips down below the waist or something and then you cut to the next day. (laughs) How much time did you
1: spend? (laughs) I'm just impressed by how much more time you spent on this than anyone in the production suite did.
0: Look, as you know, I, I spend at least five minutes doing fan service erotica before we record. Uh, it comes from a lot of my writing in the shipping community over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And uh, I'm always looking for a way to, to improve it by going like, how could there be a bra unclasped peer? Mm-hmm. But no, seriously, like, you know, you just have that like next morning. They're there. The kids are oblivious. They're both lifting like a coffee cup to their lips. And you get that little knowing smirk of like, yeah, we did it.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I ran too high because the tara ariano does this character fuck axis like i don't get the sense that he fucks sharon stone who is the most miscast of the whole movie they have no chemistry i don't think and it's i mean it's not her fault she just doesn't belong here this is not her movie
0: yeah, I, I think the lingering glance at Juliet Lewis does imply that, like, at least, you know, he has a conception of fucking and yeah. is a, evidently on his mind now and then. But pat your wife's butt, leer at her or something. Like, uh, give it's her a Sharon wink,
1: Stone. Give her
0: the grin. Yeah. And it's not hard. Like, it's Sharon Stone is very easy to find attractive. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing they could have done with that scene where Juliet Lewis speaks to him in the bar. And you, you wonder, is she going to try to seduce him to get a rise out of a, out a dwarf, <laughs> And it immediately she just goes to like, he's fucking dangerous, stay the fuck away. There isn't that frisson of like, well, maybe she does want it. And then she catches a glance and then she's afraid or... Maybe we don't know is like this a ploy is she actually doing this on the instructions Mm. uh, of Stephen Dorff to, you know, entice him into like, you know, get him out to lover's lane where he can get his ass beat in the dark where there are no witnesses. We just give that up immediately. So we don't get any sense of like how much this revelation of potential betrayal could have caused him to stray and where that plays in with the dynamic. And it's just it's. The, you know, you have that redundant plot with the boss yep. that is overriding this stuff that's already kind of doing it, but then it it's like those moments themselves don't commit and walk through the door where you, you could have underlined this better if you were concerned about doing it and also created more tension because it would have been more ambiguous. But like they cut us off instantly. Yeah. Hey, are they gonna do it? No, he's dangerous. Fuck off.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, then why are, we knew that? Well, and why cast Juliet Lewis, who can give you all of this? certainly that's not there on the page she's already been in a movie very much like this yeah (laughs) so what's your number yeah so i'll
0: I'll say five just because the tara thing does he fuck it's not enough i don't there is a qualified yes and we need an unqualified yes so that to me i'll stay at five
1: yeah i think you're right could fuck and does fuck are not the same thing nope on that note hell i could fuck (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i've like i've had the phrase hell i could
0: eat in my my head for such a long time like i just anyway we'll cut that <laughs> uh
1: listener we won't next time on quaid in full freedom colon, a history of us in the meantime check out the show notes conveniently strewn around an abandoned house and follow the podcast on Twitter at QuadeInFullPod Or get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash QuadeInFull Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? You do not get a single chocolate-covered Cherry more until you sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review QuadeInFull so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: great job integrating with the locals it's for the best